Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. So glad you could join us today. And we are welcoming a, a promising new voice to the program. Her name is Olua, Bo- Olua Bokola Adimula. And she is here to talk to us about some very exciting things that, that are going on in uh, in Africa. In particular, though, I, before before we get to your article, um, I wonder, would you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about uh, about who you are um, and what you do? Okay, thank you so much. Um, my name is Olua Bukola Demula. I am from Nigeria, and I currently work as a program associate for communication and engagement with an NGO here in Abuja, Nigeria, that deals with youth empowerment. The name of the NGO is Citizens Common Advocacy International. And I also volunteer with Students for Liberty. I am the regional coordinator for academics with African Students for Liberty. And I'm also a contributor with Young Voices. Yeah, that's pretty much who I am. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for RealClearWorld.com about women, violence, and the unfulfilled promise of the Maputo Protocol. And I have to say, I was not even aware of this protocol until I read your article. For the sake of those people like me who are who are just hearing about it for the first time, this was signed nearly more what 20 years ago. What what was the purpose of this protocol? Okay, thank you so much for that question. Same with me. I actually came across the Maputo protocol like a few months ago, and I was shocked that the protocol will actually be on a wedding clock 20 years last month, July. And literally, it's not loud. We are not even hearing about it. I do not even know about it. When I saw it, I told myself, I need to do a research about this particular protocol and come up with something because for me not having the end of it, meaning this, the main purpose of the protocol might not even, we are not even doing it, the main reason of why the protocol was created by the African Union. And so I did my research on it and I found out that, oh, it's like a document in the African Union uh, Human Charter document meant to kind of, um, more like, like I don't want to use the word constitution, but I'll call it like a guide for African countries on the elimination of discrimination against women in Africa. So this protocol is meant to sign like a binding rule between African countries that, oh, this is what you should do concerning women's rights in Africa. And each uh, state, each representative of the African state or should I say African country, have to come together and agree that, oh, this particular protocol, this is what we should do, this is what they will do. And they are meant to actually domesticate it into their own constitution in their individual country. So that is this to But as my article said, there was some loopholes in the Maybe that was why not has been done even 20 years after. Okay, thank you so much for that question. I think um the protocol, actually, in the protocol, I found out that um, there was a particular, um, I think they call it, is it section in the protocol? I think between section two or three, I'm not sure. 
it's clearly stated that African that women should have the right to inheritance, and in Africa that is just something we deal with. Even in Nigeria, yeah, there are some in some states in Nigeria, women do not have the right to inherit their father's property in court. They do not have say in their family in court. Even in some countries, I think in, not even in some countries, I mean in some states in Nigeria, yeah. I think it was early this year or late last year that a particular state, a particular community in Nigeria, that it was actually passed as a law that women can now claim rights to their father's inheritance. If not, before then, there was nothing like that. And this is one thing that was in the protocol also that women have the right. Discrimination against women, evil, um, harmful practices. I think that is even the first thing that the protocol deals with. It shed light on that female genital mutilation and other harmful practices on women should be eradicated totally. But in our country, yeah, in Africa, there are still some communities that still don't. Although there are a lot of sensitization and, and advocacy going on, but still, this is something that is still being done in our community. Even taking it down to Nigeria, yeah. let's go to the child um, marriage also. In the protocol, it clearly stated that, oh, any child below or any girl child below the age of 18 should not be forced into marriage or um, the child marriage stuff. I wrote an article about that like two or three months ago, can't clearly remember, about the fact that some communities still sell their child for as low as a tuba of yam, maybe around 5,000 naira. And 5,000 naira is pretty very, very low. 5,000 naira, not in dollars, I mean in naira. So these are things that still go on. Even in Nigeria, yeah, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, this is something that we are still experiencing and still, you know, advocacy and trying to create sensitization about this. Not even only that, um, Nigeria actually have a art, funny enough. That was one thing my article that two months ago. Um, Nigeria have a heart called the child white heart. And just few states, I mean, I think almost all states, but pretty upstate now have domesticated it. But in the domesticating, the, 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 the funny thing, or should I say, something that was so painful in the domesticating in some states is the fact that the art clearly stated, the general art that girl, uh, a girl child should not be married, that a girl child below the age of 18 should not be out in marriage. But when they were domesticating it in some states in court, especially in the northern states, they domesticated it in the way that says, oh, when your child is out a period, then she should be allowed to. Wow. A, child, a girl can start a period at the age of 11, 12. So are you trying to say at the age of 11, 12? They did domesticate it in the right way. That is just what I want to say. And a lot of work and clash on culture and religion actually play a factor into the domesticating. So that is one thing that the Maputo protocol did take into consideration. The first one was to set a body on, on how to monitor the implementation of this. There's no a specific body. 
the, the, the body generally monitor is just like the body generally monitoring all other policies that you can, you know. There's no specific body monitoring the Maputo protocol. This is one thing that, and when there's not a general body monitoring something, it's, they will, they will not be focused there. Thank you. And then the second one was the reporting. The reporting was not clear out of the Maputo protocol. They didn't put, it was just generally stated in the Maputo protocol, just something like, it wasn't the protocol. The document is not even that deep. There is no sanction, there is no punishment for, for countries that are not doing it in Africa, they're not implementing it. It's just generic, like just normal document and something generic like that will just be taken as something not important. I think those are the loopholes I actually uh, came across when I read the document. Thank you so much. So. Um I, I'm wondering, can Western nations do more to, to help uh, with the implementation of this? Would that be interfering, or is it, is it help that would be welcomed by those African nations trying to implement this protocol? Okay. I will say, to an extent, African, the Western country can, although it will... I should put it like... I won't say they should come in full force because, again, African is a continent on its own. But they can come as like a partner. And one way they can actually come into place is to place sanction and disarm. I think that is one that is like the easiest way to actually get most of the African uh, government when you place sanction and disarm and also seize their properties that are in the foreign country. I think that is how they can come in place, just to you know, put that little pressure on them to do something in their nation. Because it's not just even normal citizens in Africa. Government, government actually are also involved in this child, in this discrimination against women rights. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, we are talking with Olua Bukola Ademula. She is with uh, Young Voices, and thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Ben. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Dr. Aaron Pomerantz, a social psychologist and researcher in Houston, Texas, as well as a Young Voices contributor. And Aaron, for, for those meeting you for the first time, take just a second to tell us about yourself and you know who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a social psychologist. So uh, social psychology is uh, very much not about mental health, the way people think about psych- uh, psychology. It's, it's more about studying the individual, their relationship to society, and, and how interacting with others shapes our behavior, our thoughts, and our, our feelings. Um, I, I do a lot of my work in the sphere of, of leadership and in the sphere of culture, uh, especially atti- tied to topics such as criminal justice, uh, stigmatization, stuff like that. And uh, right now I'm, I'm a postdoctoral researcher and see, so I'll be doing that for the next couple of years here in Houston. I'm looking at a piece you wrote for uh, thevitalcenter.com about how in an honor fight, DeSantis loses. And I got to confess, I... 
I'm overloaded on politics already, but I did find this very fascinating in the sense that uh, the the dynamic between Trump and DeSantis has has definitely garnered a lot of attention. Um, talk to me about uh, Ron DeSantis's campaign. You say it's in trouble, and he knows it. Why is that? Well, I think it's in trouble because it it just seems to be stalling. I mean, I think it was it was last night or the night before. I was reading the news, and he's he's trying to 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 rebrand, but people aren't showing up for his events. And from the start, he's really tried to push himself as the, the like all the, all of Trump's positives and none of his negatives, kind of a sane, quote-unquote, alternative to Trump. But it just doesn't seem to be getting ground. Now, now, obviously, polls have gone wrong before. We all remember 2016. But even the polls don't seem to show him uh, doing super well. And then when you add to that, he just doesn't seem to be getting a lot of positive national attention. What little he does uh, seems to scare people. Uh, he, he, uh, there are, you can find numerous versions of basically the same article saying DeSantis would be worse than Trump. So he's not really reaching across the aisle. He's also doesn't – it at least seems that he's not doing a good job of appealing to Trump supporters either. A lot of people don't really see him as – a real alternative to Trump and 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 the article I advanced uh, that the reason for that is most likely because he's trying to play into Trump's honor culture based game. He's trying to use these norms of what we call honor culture and social psychology, but he's not as good as it as Trump is. And I, I, I use good, or maybe I should just say effective. He's he's not as effective at it as Trump is, so he's not going to be able to really capture anyone uh, from Trump. But he's also not establishing himself as his own demographic. So I just don't think he's really done a good job of of defining and reaching uh, an audience that, that want him to serve as the leader of th- their movement within the upcoming primary. Aaron, I'm not sure that I, I understand what honor culture entails. Would you mind delving into that a bit and just kind of fleshing that out for us? Absolutely. So honor culture is one of those things. Uh, I, I make this joke a lot that psychologists like to take words that exist in, you know, I'll say reality, reality. And then we, we give it a slightly different meaning because we have to operationalize and measure it. Uh, when we're talking about honor culture, we're referring to a, a cultural system, a set of norms. Uh, it exists across many different cultures and in many different, uh, slightly different forms at least. But the core ideas of honor culture uh, across all of its manifestations are reputation is primary. Reputation is the most important thing you can have. Your reputation is fundamental to you. And second, if anybody attacks your reputation or even threatens to attack your reputation, uh, you have to retaliate, whether directly or indirectly. The prototypical example would be a duel from the, you know, the days of the American frontier. That's why we call it honor culture, uh, an affront to one's honor that sort of uh, usage of the term honor is, is where the, the term comes from in social science. And when it comes to uh, its manifestations in American culture, it, it's, it's been linked to a lot of stuff, but primarily uh, outcomes related to violence and aggression. That was how it was, uh, it was first noted was much higher rates of homicide in certain areas of the country related to aggressive response to insult. So when we talk about culture of honor, we're talking about essentially my reputation is my core good. I'm going to retaliate against any insult or threat to my reputation, sometimes even up to the point of, of 
intentionally or not killing another person. Because that they, that they actually makes me think of honor. gangs. I mean, I think of street gangs as I hear you describe that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I totally see that, you know, the days of, you know, a general, we shall settle this with pistols at dawn. But uh, but what you're describing, no, there's that that is definitely a part of our culture. How is it that DeSantis, where does he fall short? I mean, certainly he, his honor is being attacked, just like Trump's honor is being attacked. What does, how does Trump do it more effectively in terms of, of embracing and, and living that honor culture? Trump does not tolerate any insult or even the even the implication of insult. Um, he's not always he doesn't always respond in a way that I would say would reach to those outside of an, a culture of honor. But for those within an honor culture, even the slightest insult, Trump will hit back and he'll hit hard. He doesn't necessarily hit back physically. But if you'll recall back in the 2016 election when he and Ted Cruz seemed to be the, the two leaders, he made fun of Ted Cruz's wife and Ted Cruz kind of accepted it. He, he put up a little bit of bluster, but he didn't really defend anything. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I work here in Texas. I'm not from Texas, but Texas is definitely an honor state. I think that's when Cruz lost. And I think DeSantis is kind of the same in the same boat as Ted Cruz. Uh, he... I mean, just among some of the things that the Trump campaign has said, they've, impl- they've implied that he might have been a pedophile. Uh, and by I use the word implied very loosely. They basically said it without crossing bounds into actual libel. Uh, they constantly make fun of him. Trump especially calls him disanctimonious. All these yep. little nicknames. Again, that's the thing. Wait, Trump is really good at, at insulting people. And if you can insult somebody and get away with it in a culture of honor, that means that they're scared to retaliate. You're the bigger man. Trump knows this. He does it all the time. DeSantis only ever hits back, so-called, on issues. He never tries to bring up anything about Trump that isn't strictly about the issues. But if you're going to try to capture Trump's base, you can't afford to do that. You need to fight back the way Trump does. I'm not saying, you know, throw down the gloves and say, see you outside. I'm going to hit you. Right. But, you know, fighting a little bit dirty, maybe pointing out some of Trump's little foibles and getting personal, that would put DeSantis in a situation of strength from an honor perspective. He, he, he talks the talk that Trump does in terms of like he's very tough on, you know, he's tough on crime, his, his war on wokeness. He has all of that down, I would argue, even better than Trump does. But that's just populism. But if, he, if he's going to keep tolerating these individual insults, which he just seems to be, I mean, he's even promised to pardon Trump, even as Trump quite clearly makes it plain to the world, I don't like Ron DeSantis. I think very little of Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is, you know, all these horrible things. Uh, DeSantis' toleration of that just completely incompatible with auto norms. And what it transmits is he's weak, he's vulnerable, and he's not trustworthy in any you know, pedal meeting the metal sort of a situation. Aaron, it seems paradoxical, but it seems like to, to really thrive in honor culture, you can't take the high road all the time, or at least, you know, the way I'm hearing you describe that high road, that's, that's for losers. Yes, certainly not in uh, American honor cultures. Uh, in, in American culture of honor, I mean, you, you brought up gangs. Exa- that's a perfect example. You can't tolerate an insult. You can't take them. There is no moral high road. But actually, really interestingly, we've seen in studies looking at people who violently retaliate, they're actually judged as more moral by people in cultures of honor. So so to that extent, it might be that we're even just talking about a different definition of high road. Uh, to them, the high road is being you know, retaliatory and, 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 and hitting back personally. Wow. 
Fascinating. Okay, I have to admit, I've been kind of keeping arm's length from from the presidential uh, candidacy because it is it's pretty early. But you have just sparked my interest. I'm going to be watching it with new eyes now, thanks to this discussion. Again, we're talking with Dr. Aaron Pomerantz. He's a social psychologist and researcher in Houston, Texas, as well as a Young Voices contributor. Aaron, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, so I have, a, I have a Twitter at pompom9211. So P O M P O M nine two one one. I, uh, when I'm not just posting thoughts about my kid or my dog, I, I like to share uh, some social me- some uh, social research and social science stuff that uh, attends to the issues I research, and this is one of them. Uh, issues of leadership really are going to come into play, I think, in this upcoming election, and so I, I will post things there, and as well as posting my young voices stuff there as well. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Sophia Hamilton back to the show. Of course, she is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Sophia, for the people meeting you for the first time, take a second and tell us about yourself. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Sophia Hamilton, and I am a policy a uh, health policy studies research associate at a DC think tank. And I'm also a writer and commentator here at Young Voices, where I focus on issues related to healthcare, housing, and welfare. And today we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, this is this this may seem like a kind of a different topic, but why won't retailers eat, uh, mail pepper spray to residents of crime-ridden DC? Tell us the story that, that kind of sparked this article that you wrote. Yeah, so pretty much every young woman or young person that I know that lives or works in D.C. or really any other large city carries around pepper spray. It's just a normal self-defense weapon. It's easy to tote around. And typically, any venue that has a bouncer or security won't permit you to have your pepper spray inside. So that's what happened to me. I went to a concert venue. I had my pepper spray, and it got taken away at a venue. Perfectly fine. I wish that I had it afterwards when I was walking home at night, but I got home safely. So the next morning I went onto Amazon just to reorder myself one. And, you know, as a person living in a city without a car, I really rely on online retailers to do most of my shopping. So I went to go order the pepper spray on Amazon, the exact same one that I already had. And I got an error code letting me know that I something was wrong with my order. I couldn't get it delivered to my DC address. So I did some quick thinking And I put in some other addresses. I put my parents' home down in Florida, and I didn't have the error message. And when I did the same thing for close by Arlington, other addresses in Maryland close by to D.C., the error message wasn't there. So my first thought was, there's something going on here with the D.C. government. They must have some sort of asinine prohibition on pepper spray, and they're not letting me order it to my home in D.C., And I did a lot of digging there. And I found out the DC government actually isn't the one to blame, um, which I think that's probably the first time I've said that I would have blamed them first (laughs) every time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So it's totally legal to possess pepper spray and to use it for self-defense purposes. Um, But retailers just don't understand that. So Amazon wasn't giving me any information on why I couldn't order the pepper spray. So I went to other retailers that just sell pepper spray. So Sabre is the largest manufacturer of pepper spray, and they're actually the brand that I own. And their website says they're not permitted at all to ship pepper spray to D.C., 
And then doing some more digging on their website, I also saw a line that says that pepper spray in D.C. needs to be registered at a police station. But when I was digging through the D.C. code, I found that that regulation was repealed back in 2017. So it seems that these retailers have no idea of the regulations that are that they're shipping to in these different states and that they're prohibiting these products from being sent to customers in entire states, entire cities, entire regions, just because they're not up to date on these regulations. Wow. Now, did you say you tried to contact Amazon? Did you try to bring this to their attention and say, hey, you guys maybe ought to fix this? Yeah, so I, I sent a slew of emails to um, contacts at Amazon, at Sabre. There are several other pepper spray companies that I was reaching out to that I saw that they have these outdated regulations on their websites. And sadly, I haven't heard back from anyone. I've tried tweeting them. I've tried all of my different courses of action, um, but I haven't heard anything back yet. So hopefully this will stir some sort of drama and get their attention because there's really no reason why I shouldn't be able to purchase these products online. No, for for sure. Now, you also looked into, though, are there other options? In fact, are there other, you know, weapons that you could have, have ordered, you know, through Amazon? Tell me what you learned about that. So, funnily enough, um, going on Amazon, when I figured out I couldn't order pepper spray, I was looking at what other self-defense weapons they had. And funnily enough, I could order all of these straight to my door in D.C. I could get a full-size machete. I could get a katana. I could get a compound crossbow. I could get throwing stars. I could get throwing knives. I could get a blow dart gun. There was all these crazy things where those seem much more dangerous than pepper spray. But I guess they're making these supposed rules about what can be shipped where based on outdated regulations. Because I don't even think I can legally carry around a machete, a 25-inch machete in D.C., but I can get it shipped here, but just not pepper spray. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, this, but but again, just so f- people understand, it's not D.C. that's telling you you can't have that. This is the company that, that is it caught up in, well, we can't ship that to you because we believe that's against regulations. Exactly. So these large retailers are misinformed on state regulations and are consequently prohibiting entire cities from purchasing self-defense products for no reason. It's not the government here at all because it's totally legal to possess pepper spray and to use pepper spray. Wow. And and not to we're not trying to play on people's fears when we acknowledge um, crime is a real concern for people who live in and around the D.C. area. Oh, it definitely is. And I'll be the first to say that I love living in D.C. I love it here so much, but I do have to take my safety into account living in a large city like D.C. In the past year, crime has gone up by about 36 percent from this month to last month. And it's just you have to take that into account. You're seeing reports of robberies, of violent crimes, of shootings. You want to make sure that you can do one little thing to keep yourself safe. And for me and for a lot of other young women, that's carrying around pepper spray. That gives us an added sense of security. And the way that these retailers are telling us that we're not allowed to order it for no reason is really upsetting. So, Sophia, I have to ask, did you look at any other alternative um, retailers of of pepper spray? And I wondered if maybe you ran into that same um, mentality that you saw from Amazon. Yeah, so I looked into a couple other um, pepper spray organ like pepper spray 
manufacturers online. I saw one that was called like Bling Sting, uh, Pepper Spray Store, Palm Industries. They were all huge manufacturers of pepper spray, though smaller than Sabre. And they all had these same error codes when I went to go order the products to my address. They're all completely legal in D.C., but just those retailers are also misinformed. Wow. That's, so, okay, what's the, what's the next step? I mean, I guess you could just, well, I guess I just won't protect myself when I'm out and about. Um, or are there other steps that you're looking to take to, to try to help them understand that this is not against regulation or law? So I've tried to reach out to the companies and I haven't heard anything back. I'll definitely keep doing that because I want this to be changed. I want it to be easier for myself and for other Washingtonians to be able to order these products. But thankfully, living in D.C., we're very close to other cities. So I had my pepper spray shipped to a friend that was living in Arlington, Virginia, which is just a quick hop over the river. Um, And I think that's the best solution as of now. Um, I do think you can buy pepper spray in some in-person retailers in D.C. I'm not exactly sure where those would be, but you'd have to do some hunting. But for a lot of people, online retail is the easiest way, and that's how we do most of our shopping. So... As of now, you're going to have to kind of smuggle the pepper spray in, which it's not really smuggling because it is legal. <laughs> but it feels like it. Yeah. I mean, it feels like oh, I got to I got to meet my bit. connection down by the docks, you know, at midnight. And um, I, just out of curiosity, have you spoken to any members of law enforcement in that area and, and seen what, what their take is? I've reached out to um, some contacts at the local police stations, and I haven't heard anything. I did speak to some individuals on the D.C. Council, and they assured me that it was entirely legal to have pepper spray, but I haven't had anyone willingly comment on the crime issue going on in D.C. So interesting. And and it seems like it would, it, you know, in a free market, this should open up an opportunity for some enterprising self-defense retailer to say, oh, well, there's a, there's a whole segment that isn't being, you know, taken care of. You know, they should be able to step in and hopefully, um, you know, thrive as a result. Exactly. Economically prohibiting entire markets from a product makes no sense for these companies. So I'm hoping it's just blind blindness to the actual regulations going on. But that's me just being very hopeful. We're, we've, we've got about one minute left here, Sophia. I just want to ask, what is the perception of the people who, who live there in the, in the Washington, D.C. area? Um, they don't live in a state of constant fear, right? But, but do they live in a state of kind of uh, heightened awareness, maybe mild anxiety as to, you know, when I'm out and it's night, I have to keep my head on a swivel, you know, to be aware of what's going on? I think that's a great way to put it is heightened. Um, I live downtown in the city i'm not afraid to walk around at night i have to take my dog out late at night but i am aware i'm keeping my head on a swivel i'm holding my pepper spray i'm making sure i'm not going to any place in town that i wouldn't go during the day and just making sure that i know what's going around in my surroundings so i can prepare myself to for any self-defense situation that would arise. But I'm not going to not go out of my apartment. I'm still living my life to the fullest. I don't really think you need to be that afraid of the city. Um, But just that's how you act in any city. You just have to be aware of your surroundings. Again, we are speaking with Sophia Hamilton. She is a Young Voices contributor. Sophia, where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Sophie Hamilton.
back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment. i got to tell you, I'm, I'm getting a, kind of a, a wonderful uh, globetrotter feel because we have been talking to contributors today from, from all over the globe. We started out with a contributor in Nigeria, then a, another contributor in Houston, one in Washington, D.C. And now we have Marcos Falcone joining us from Argentina. Marcos, welcome. Good to have you on board. Hi, Brian. Thank you for the invite. So we know that you are a Young Voices contributor, but for the sake of people uh, meeting you for the very first time, take a moment. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes. So I'm a political scientist. Uh, I'm based in Argentina. Um, That's where I'm from, too. Um, I've lived some time in the U.S. Uh, I did my master's at the University of Chicago, um, and I now work as the project manager of Fundación Libertad, which is Argentina's oldest um, classical liberal think tank so to say. Now, I understand, and I'm thinking back over the last uh, probably 15, maybe 20 years, Argentina has had some struggles. I mean, um, at one time, I know that Argentina was synonymous with being one of of the um, most wealthy and prosperous uh, countries in South America. Um, But there have been some some left-wing administrations of late that have made things a little bit tougher. Talk to me a little bit about the circumstances um, going into this next presidential election, which, um, uh, looking at the article you wrote, uh, looks like there, there may be a possibility for a shift in course for the first time in, in quite some time. Yes, that's right. So um, Argentina has suffered a lot uh, in the past two decades, we could say, um, from a series of left-wing administrations, um, which have basically disrupted the country's economy uh, a lot. So, for example, um, the inflation rate was 8%. Uh, the annual inflation rate was 8% in Argentina in wow. 2007. But it's today 114%. So that is a number that I don't think anyone in a Western democracy is used to. Um, and, and the reason behind this dramatic change is basically the deficit. Uh, Argentina likes to spend a lot of money that it does not have. Um, and that's a problem when you run out of people who want to um, lend money to you. And that's what's happened to Argentina, basically. The country has had to print out money, literally, uh, to pay for its own expenses. Um, and this has caused inflation to grow slowly but steadily up to the point that we're now. And this has been fueled by these left-wing administrations, which like to promise everything to the people, but Try to hide the cost of giving everything out for free. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the personality behind um, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. Uh, I know in your article you refer to her as CFK just because it's, it's a little more abbreviated, but um, talk to me about her career and, and what path has she followed that, uh, that has people in Argentina, you know, voters possibly ready to make a big change? Right. So um, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner is actually a a very curious um, person because in reality, it was her husband who was president before her uh, from 2003 to 2007. Um, Prior uh, to that, she was a senator, but she was not really that important in the political scene. But um, Nestor Kirchner, her husband, uh, sort of picked her um, to succeed him in 2007, and so she became president. Now, her husband died in 2010, and that left her as the main um, political figure in her party. 
She won re-election in 2011. Um, and from, 27, uh, from uh, 2007 sorry, to 2015, this was the period that Argentina did worse in terms of inflation. Inflation went from 8% to 40%. Uh, she left with a deficit of 8% of the GDP, which is just tremendous. Uh, and so in that year, her party lost uh, against uh, former President Macri, who then tried to reverse course, but was unable to do so, because of the severity of the problem. So what happened? She came back to power in 2019. But at that moment, she was unpopular enough so that she couldn't be the um, president herself. She instead picked uh, the president and remained as vice president. So today she is the vice president, even though she picked the president. Um, hmm. And now she is not standing. She's not running for uh, election in 2023, even though she could uh, legally, uh, because her popularity figures are just terrible. Um, polls show that only 26% of Argentines view her favorably right now, and over 70% have a negative opinion of her. This does not sound like a politician who can win an election. Um, and even less so an election that could be decided uh, in a second ballot when you need uh, over 50 percent to win. Wow. So talk to me about the opposition that is now stepping forward um, to to run for that that presidential race. Um, are, are there any clear front runners or are there so many that it's hard to choose? You know, who would be the best, uh, most likely candidate? Yes. Yeah, so basically, um, we have a, an opposition coalition that's called Juntos por el Cambio. Um, and to that coalition belonged former President Macri between 2015 and 2019. Now, that coalition has two main candidates. Uh, one is the Buenos Aires mayor, uh, Horacio Rodriguez Larreta, and the other is former Minister of Security, Patricia Mulrich. Um, and what they do is they're, they basically agree that the next president cannot be a spendthrift they agree that the country needs austerity once and for all, but the way in which they want to bring that about is different. So Larreta promises dialogue, consensus. He wants to listen to economic actors who may be, um, well, who may suffer because of these changes, uh, like unions or uh, businesses that rely on high tariffs to survive. But Patricia Bullrich is saying, no, we need to be strong. We need to be strong enough not to cede um, and, and not to uh, let ourselves uh, be carried away by interest groups. So it's basically the mechanism for change which is being debated, but not really the end goal, which is uh, that Argentina needs fiscal stability once and for all. Wow. I remember reading accounts online from back in 2007, 2008, or at least it seems like it was back around there, where uh, basically the, the Argentinian middle class almost ceased to exist. Um, many, many people fell from the middle class in, into poverty. Has that situation stabilized? I know you mentioned inflation is what now, 114 um, percent. Is it just I know people have to adapt, but are, are people's living is their standard of living improving? I mean, do they have hope when they hear of some alternative to the, the current administration? 
Right. So um, the middle class has been traditionally pretty strong in Argentina. So even though the standard of living uh, decreases over time or has decreased in past decades, um, the, its resilience has been remarkable. Uh, for example, uh, what people do to protect themselves against uh, over 100% inflation is they buy U.S. dollars. Um, so the, then the government tries to prevent people from doing that because that would raise the price of the dollar. Um, and then people do it anyway. Uh, and so we have unofficial markets uh, where when people exchange basically uh, goods and services, uh, even, if, um, even if the government doesn't like that. Um, but it is true that over time, we are seeing more and more people fall out of the system, so to say. People who um, rely on handouts, um, who don't send their children to school, who have to go to public hospitals, uh, the quality of which is, is very bad. Um, and we increasingly see this divide that Argentina didn't usually have uh, between people who are able to get by and people who are not. Uh, because as you said at the beginning of this interview, Argentina used to be uh, the wealthiest country in South America, and it used to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, and that is what is giving Argentina um, a chance, if you will, because the starting point was pretty good, but is also what threatens to um, cease to be a reality if Argentina continues uh, the course that, that it is on right now. Okay, we're down to about 30 seconds left. When will these elections be taking place? Yes, so the primary election is taking place August 13. That mirrors the general election, which is taking place October 22, because uh, participation is mandatory. And so uh, we will we'll have a pretty good idea of what will happen in October this August. Wow. Well, you don't have very long to wait. I'm kind of wishing we could <laughs> cut to the chase on our presidential election and see which direction we're going. I do wish wish you and uh, and your countrymen the very best, though. Um, it sounds like there's a real possibility for uh, a positive change. Again, we're talking with Marcos Falcone. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Marcos, for people who want to uh, contact you or want to follow you on social media, how, do, how can they best find you? Yeah, so they can follow me on Twitter if they like at... Um Hyper Falcon um, with a with a Latin I instead of the Y, um, and they will they will find me and everything I have to say in Spanish on Twitter.